and welcome to Logical from the Dubai-based law firm HPL Yamalova and Pleska, the UAE's first and only weekly legal podcast. I'm Tim Elliott. I'm here once again at Reef Tower in Dubai's JLT district with the firm's managing partner, Ludmilla Yamalova. As ever, Ludmilla, good to see you. It's great to see you too, Tim. Thanks for being here and always lovely chatting with you. In this edition of Logical, disputes in business, specifically shareholder disputes. Now, in your practice, Ludmilla, you have advised, are currently advising, and will no doubt continue to advise clients who are looking to set up shop here in the United Arab Emirates. Now, the UAE is an attractive place to do business. There's a lot of opportunity. The current legal framework in the UAE means that overseas parties wishing to do business in this jurisdiction will generally have to enter into shareholder arrangements with a local partner. That's to be onshore. Offshore is a different situation. But here's the thing. Put the way you structure your company to one side. People are people. We can't get along all of the time. Disputes arise. So an ironclad legal agreement, if that's even a thing, is the first thing you need, isn't it? Indeed. And so uh, you are correct that uh, on shore, if you set up on shore, you need to, in most cases, you need to have a local partner, which means um, a partner in that context means a 51% shareholder who is a UAE national. Mm. Uh, so it's not just a partner on a paper or in the agreement, but in fact on your uh, share certificates and on your all your corporate documents and uh, registered with the government authority that's licensing that particular company. Uh, a very similar concept exists in all the free zones um, it, with regards to at least the registration of uh, the shareholders. And that is when you, let's say you and I set up a company in the free zone, in that case, we do not need to have a local partner. I mean, that's the whole idea of a free zone. You and I can be our, our the, the two shareholders, um, 100% shareholders collectively. Uh, but the, but our arrangement is registered with the government, just like it is on the on the uh, mainland, and it's just registered by a different economic uh, entity, if you will. So on the mainland, it's the Department of Economic Development, or otherwise known as DED. Uh, in the free zone, is a particular free zone that becomes your licensing authority, and this is important. Uh, and I'll explain shortly why this particular discussion is important, and that is. Uh, so our relationship as shareholders, for example, is now registered by a particular free zone authority. This means that uh, we receive a license, and as part of that license, it will show that Tim and I, Tim and Ludmila, are 50-50, let's say, um, owners of the company. Uh, it will also... Um, be registered with the government, and we will also be issued a number of uh, corporate documents as part of our of our company. And uh, depending on where you're set up, some of these corporate documents are quite standard templates of that particular issuing authority, let's say the free zone. So we'll have the MOAs and memorandums of uh, uh, associations and articles and corporations. And so these are the typical corporate uh, documents that are issued in connection with opening up a company. And so all of these documents cumulatively will reflect you and me as the two shareholders. So it's not just a side agreement between us that you and I draft something and says, okay, Tim is 50%, Ludmila is 50%. These are actually government documents that are registered with the government and and uh, reside with the government that clearly show that you and I are registered shareholders. Now, as part of these government documents, there will be a whole series of 
corporate um, uh, corporate structures uh, that are outlined in terms of how we're going to run our company. And so the voting, the, the meetings, uh, the decisions and appointments and the notices and so on and so forth. And one of the things is that, okay, we're the 50-50 shareholders, so we're equal shareholders. And perhaps we will outline that to make decisions, certain decisions we can do singly, some decisions we have to have uh, to, to do jointly and so on and so forth. Uh, so, uh, and if you have partners who are 50-50, it creates a bit of a, 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 I guess, a theoretical bind when you're talking about a dispute. So, okay, if we're in dispute, uh, who prevails since we're 50-50? Mm. Uh, but a lot of relationships, actually, these these companies are set up in different percentages. So, let's go back to you and me, but this time I am 10% shareholder and you're 90% shareholder. That seems a much simpler uh, simpler scenario uh, in in terms of disputes, at least in, theoretically, right? Oh, in theory, I'm the boss in this relationship. In theory. In practice, however, <laughs> that is not the case. I saw that coming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know the 90% is obviously... Uh, is. Um, uh, in, in kind of in most other countries, it's, it seems pretty clear. Well, I'm the majority shareholder. Therefore, I have the majority, uh, the majority decision making authority in terms of you know, certain decisions, and including if we have a dispute. In most other jurisdictions, the same governing corporate govern governments document that, uh, that I described earlier, like MOAs and AOAs. Um, they will outline, and very also shareholder resolutions, board resolutions, and such. They will outline what happens in the event you and I are, uh, you and I are in a dispute. And so, in very simple terms, for example, they would say, um, if we are in a dispute, we have X number of meetings, X number of notices. We try to resolve the dispute, and let's say after all that, we are unable to resolve our dispute. Therefore, you as a share, as a majority shareholder, can take over my shares. Now, it's not to say that I won't get compensated for those shares. I will get compensated, but in practical terms, you can ultimately reassign those shares to you. So now you're 100% shareholder of the company, but you have to compensate me for the value of those 10 percent uh, shares, but at least you can manage the company. Mm. And the reason this formula, this structure exists, obviously for that same reason, is that you want to continue to run the company. And often when shareholders are in dispute, the whole thing comes to to uh, um, a halt because uh, when when shareholders don't agree, and when it, it often these uh, kinds of disputes become very acrimonious and very ugly <laughs> in the. Um, and so, and then everything becomes an issue in terms of, okay, taking money, making, uh, making transfers, hiring, firing, uh, you know, office hours and, um, anything else, your dividends and what have you. So day to day business issues become issues. <laughs> so or become problems when you have shareholders fighting. So that's why in theoretical terms, you understand, okay, well, the company should continue to run. So therefore it makes sense. And, and, uh, and, and we have accounted for that in our initial government uh, governing documents. And that is in that particular case, you can take the shares and you can now run the business, but that does not deprive me of my interest in the company. 
as of that point in time. So you will still have to compensate me for the value and that's sort of a separate process. And there are often even the, uh, uh, the mechanism for valuing my shares will be described in those governing documents. So there is a process that we already ahead of time know um, we will follow in terms of, for example, figuring out what the value should be. So now under that particular scenario, you can run the company on your own and I get compensated for my 10%. Uh, so that's how it's done in most cases, in, mo- in most jurisdictions, uh, I guess, in, particularly in the U.S., uh, and in the UAE, however, it doesn't quite work that way. So on paper and legally speaking, uh, we may have a very similar structure, still 90, 10, you're the majority. And in our governing documents, we will have a process outlined for purposes of disputes and how we're supposed to resolve them and and how many notices are supposed to be uh, given. And ultimately, there may even be a provision, in most cases there's a provision, that you can take over the shares because you're the majority shareholder. So legally speaking and document-wise, the process is perhaps outlined, and we sort of know that and try to avail ourselves of that. But in practical terms, that's not possible. So, and this is because going back to my earlier um, description of how our companies registered is registered with the authorities so in order for you to take over my 10 shares you basically have to go to the authority and the authority has to uh, has to reassign those shares to you and in this so you, it's not contractually we cannot do it in other countries the, these documents are not necessarily registered with the authorities and you and i can basically it's just it's all done by contract and you just go and you update the contract with the government saying hey listen here's i'm 90 percent shareholder we've had all this happen so now please you, i reassign the, the shares to me and that happens here the authority uh, has to um basically get my permission, my approval that I am selling you the shares or I'm transferring the shares to you. But in the context of a dispute, obviously, I'm not going to give you that permission. So therefore, you cannot, in practical terms, transfer the shares to yourself, even though we had agreed to that in in legal terms. Uh, But you cannot do it now uh, uh, that we have a dispute without my approval. And my approval uh, can come either by here, I'm transferring the shares or I'm selling the shares. But one way or the other, you need my approval. And the authorities will not process your request, even if you show them all these other govern- governing documents, until you have given you my approval. So now, and the way the authorities look at it is that, well, listen, uh, when you try to present the governing documents, and say, listen, we've got a mechanism here that clearly describes what happens. And this has, this has happened, and I have proof for you that it has happened. So now I transfer the shares to me. So their position is, well, that's not their authority, to their jurisdiction to do it. They are just a governing authority. They're not a judicial authority. So they're not the right entity for you and me right now just to, to look at, okay, so who is right, who is wrong, and uh, how do we interpret all these governing documents? So that's the position of authorities here. So therefore, your only option in this case is to go to the court because the the licensing authority will not help you. Uh, and um, and then you go to the court, and then the court, in fact, here, the, and this is also very important, in majority of the cases, the courts will not issue the order for you to take over my shares, but rather, uh, in most cases, the court will issue an order for us to liquidate the company, and then just um, uh, and then get compensated as per the percentage of our shares. So that is how it works today in practical terms and sort of in, in, in kind of simple terms. And that's why it's a very nuanced issue uh, that um, 
whenever you have shareholders, it's not so easy to resolve their dispute disputes, even when you have 99 and 1% shareholder, as long as I hold any shares, you will need approval from me to do anything to, to change that shareholding structure. And to do so, unless I, if I don't give it to you, the only way, your only recourse is to go into court. And uh, the court will, uh, in most cases, we have yet to see a decision where the court actually uh, actually issues an order to, to transfer the shares. In most cases, it's a decision, decision to liquidate. In the meantime, you've got a company, you've got a business uh, that perhaps is failing and is struggling because you and I cannot agree. So it presents uh, some serious um, challenges to a lot of businesses, and we see this quite often. Uh, and uh, this is the, the, where the system is looking how to potentially soothe or or um, ease these kind of burdens and depending on the the let's say the governing authority the licensing authority uh, certain free zones are starting to introduce uh, regulations that um, at least have some kind of temporary measures uh, for shareholders to or for for stakeholders uh, to avail themselves of uh, you know, while there's a dispute and most of the time it's basically it, they're quite limited uh, limited options still, uh, but the idea is that if licensing authority, can, for example, can freeze certain activities of the company or w- one party's ability to perhaps abuse their powers, um, then at least there's a chance of preserving the business. But this is still a new concept, a novel concept, and still a work in progress. I mean, it's often said, isn't it, that outside of divorce courts, the most bitter disputes are between shareholders. That oftentimes, company shareholdings bring together very different people, very different outlooks uh, and very different attitudes. So there, there are a whole host of issues that can lead to disputes. You could disagree over the management, uh, the direction of a business. There could be personal relationship problems. It might be distribution of dividends or, or lack thereof, I suppose. The point is you can't see where the problems might arise. So uh, let's get down to to brass tacks, as it were. Where do you start, Ludmilla, if you do have a dispute with a shareholder? Um, in some cases, you, you operate in the DMCC, Dubai Multi Commodities Centre. That's your licensing jurisdiction, if you like. Now, I know that there you can apply to disqualify a shareholder, but you have to prove they're no longer fit for the role based on DMCC regulations here in Dubai. Similarly, you can file with the court to have a shareholder removed, as you've outlined. Um, but how would you, under DMCC regulation, for example, prove that somebody is not fit? Where on earth do you start? Well, sure. And this is actually a great example. DMCC in particular is a great example because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this is obviously a challenge that has existed. So a yeah. number of licensing authorities have been looking to update their rules to uh, to offer more flexibility for shareholders and business owners to uh, resolve these kinds of dispute. And so DMCC is, is a good example because only in January of 2020, which is a month ago, right. they have introduced a new set of rules, which now, as you rightfully said, does offer the ability to apply to the to the registrar of the DMCC to have um, the a manager or like an officer disqualified, not so much a shareholder disqualified, but an officer disqualified. Because And this is important because in most cases here, one of the shareholders is also an officer, one or the other, or both shareholders are all, um, also yeah. offices. And in practical terms, it's not the shareholders that, um, uh, that run companies, but rather 
officers. And mm-hmm. then the officers, in most cases, are also the shareholders. Uh, so the disqualification is not of the shareholders because that's the that's the ownership interest, right? And so it's not that you're asking the licensing authority to take away uh, the, the right of ownership or, or interest of, of um, ownership from someone, but rather their involvement in running the business on a day-to-day basis. So that's what you're asking for. So the DMCC has now introduced that particular a mechanism is to apply for for company, for shareholder, uh, for an officer of the company to apply to the registrar to uh, seek disqualification of um, uh, of that particular officer. And as you said, uh, uh, you have to present proof that that particular person is unfit to run. Uh, to run uh, the businesses. Now, the the way the rules are structured, you don't have to you know, to show that an officer is unfit uh, or is not suitable. You don't need to bring a court judgment because obviously they're going to defeat the whole purpose. Uh, so it's just to show to the registrar uh, the reasons why you believe that person is unfit to run. Uh, so, and um, that's obviously subject to interpretation in terms of what kind of evidence you uh, you prove and what uh, else the registrar might might require for them to feel satisfied. But in general terms, it's a, just an example of um, uh, of perhaps what you may may consider abuses of uh, process or abuses of power uh, that you would show to the registrar. For example, let's say somebody that particular officer is terminating an employee who you know as a company is either a valuable employee or who, for example, you think that you, that you as the other office holder, rely on quite heavily. Uh, and uh, so you know that, um, uh, that the termination of a particular employee is not in the benefit of the company. And remember, the officer's job is to act in the interest of the company and all of the shareholders, not just one of the shareholders, but all of the shareholders. So when an officer is now terminating a valuable employee, that will affect the company's business. So that is uh, that it obviously is an example of abuse of power. Or, or, for example, when the office is terminating an employee, let's say an executive assistant of the other shareholder or who is also an officer in the company. So let's say I'm a shareholder, I'm an officer in the company, and I've got a, my right-hand executive assistant who I've been working and relying on for the last many years. And now the other officer, you being the other officer, you, you go and you single-handedly or unilaterally try to terminate that employee. Well... Now, you're not acting in the interest, in, certainly in my interest as a shareholder, and you're not acting, uh, arguably, in the interest of the company because that particular person is valuable. So if you can show that to the registrar, that obviously could constitute proof that the person is not suit- suitable for uh, for run for acting or playing a role, that managerial role of the company, because obviously they're abusing their powers and uh, doing things that are not in the interest of the company. So, I mean, that's one. The other one, for example, of the that same officer, being you, will make you the bad cop here, is that you go and you harass your employees and you mistreat them. Uh, and that also can lead to liabilities for the company. Or if you mistreat your employees and or you terminate them arbitrarily, uh, that can lead to massive liabilities for the company. Sure. Or if you start taking away documents from the company, or if you start taking loans for yourself and uh, and paying out uh, dividends to yourself, or, or taking money from the company and setting up your own company. Uh, so it's obviously the burden of proof is on, is on the requesting shareholder. 
uh, or office holder. Uh, uh, but uh, you, but these are some of the examples. It is you don't doesn't need to be a conclusive court judgment, but you can show. However, you whatever evidence you may have to show to the registrar um, that there are things that that are obvious, um, obviously happening today that are detrimental to the company's interests and certainly to the interests of at least one of the shareholders, and that by the DMCC's own regulations renders those people unfit uh, for that role. So that's doing it through uh, through the licensing authority. Yes. But as you said earlier, there's also the next step is you actually now under the DMC regulations, now there's a provision also allowing the shareholder to apply for disqualification of the other shareholder when there is an unfair prejudice. So, and then you apply to court. So here, uh, as per the DMCC rules, now me as the shareholder, going back to you and me as an example, I'm the good one, you're the bad one. Me as the shareholder can now apply to the court, to the, the local court, and request for the court to disqualify you as the other shareholder uh, for your unfair prejudice that you're causing to the company overall and to me as, as the shareholder individually. So uh, just to use DMCC as an example, there is a, a perfect uh, a perfect example of, of how the regulations have been recently updated, again, just a month ago, allowing the shareholders a different avenue to perhaps uh, to resolve or at least to moderate their disputes. And um, yeah, other free zones, the FC free zone and the ADGM free zones, they have the, these processes are much easier to follow. Uh, but other licensing authorities, this is what we're, we, we presume that they will follow suits uh, soon enough. But for now, the overall, um, um, I guess, process of removing or resolving shareholder disputes is, st- is still quite challenging. I know you can't comment on particular ongoing cases, but can you offer any ideas of some of the kinds of disputes you've heard about, been involved in, the things that people do in shareholder disputes? Yeah, I think that that would warrant a separate, a separate podcast <laughs> it in and of itself and an extended edition because there have been so many examples of uh, really? these kinds of disputes. Uh, but um, and perhaps this is done because the UAE is a very um, is a very dynamic and very fast paced business culture, and so many new businesses are being set up here quite uh, often, and, and sort of not just one business, it's multiple businesses, and a lot of the times it's between partners who um, uh, who are perhaps you know foreigners of different countries. Somebody is here more present than the other, mm-hmm. and uh, their personal circumstances change, their financial circumstances change, and uh, but they are all very eager to benefit from the UAE sort of burgeoning business culture, and so they jump on that wagon of setting up a business and 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 having a partnership together without perhaps uh, having done the kind of the, the proper the more expected due diligence of each other's uh, skills and talents and uh, experience and history perhaps uh, uh, than would have otherwise been done elsewhere uh, so it's just because this is you you is a very unique in that situation there is historically not so uh, distant past there was a lot of money here and a lot of people mm-hmm. coming here with money wanting to invest and um, they were very open for all sorts of investment ideas and they were equally so a lot of people here were willing to work with that money uh, trying to create a business or so so we've seen a lot of partnerships like that where 
one partner is investing money and the other one is supposed to be investing the sweat equity trying to build a business and then they sell to the investing partner or the investor uh, the dream and um, and the investing partner wants to buy the dream because there are a lot of lots of great salespeople here and then so you invest as as the investing partner and um, into this dream and the dream ends up being not a dream at all because let's say you're the investor and I'm the, the, the sweat equity partner here. I don't know how to run a restaurant. So we've had examples like that where, and you see, this is an important one because in other jurisdictions, investors do not, in most cases, do not become shareholders. They do not necessarily become owners in the company. They're just investors. But here, in most cases, the only way to really for investors to protect their interests is just to actually become shareholders. So in most of these kinds of financing cases, uh, the uh, the investor becomes actual the actual shareholder. So we've had cases like that. For example, you're an investor, and I'm, and I want to open a restaurant for you, and I tell you, and I'll give you whatever fancy graphics and Excel spreadsheets showing you that I can do it. Just I can grow this restaurant uh, at the pace of Google, and you like the idea, and you don't really have the time to monitor me. Uh, uh, nor be involved in this business, but you really want to invest and diversify. <laughs> so you you buy my sales pitch, and then uh, a year later you realize I'm just asking for more and more money, and you have not seen a single dirham of of, of even revenue, let alone profit. Mm. So that's one example, right? And so there've been a lot of examples like that, where one, uh, you, some some of the the owners of the companies are uh, are investors, and others are sort of supposedly producing. Uh, or investing sweat capital and equity and um, and want to uh, grow the business, but the business doesn't grow. <laughs> and so at some point, the investing partner either wants out, or in most cases, they want out and they want the investment back. So there is your one example. Uh, the other example is where families come together, and that's quite uh, yeah, quite fr- families or friends. Uh, that often happens. But in particular, it's very sensitive and painful uh, when families come together and families to set up businesses, be it um, father and son or um, husband and wife, and then they have a dispute. And then the dispute, especially when it's husband and wife and there's a divorce involved, it gets very ugly. I mean, I guess by virtue of, of, of uh, the whole idea of a divorce, a lot of, uh, a lot of these cases become very um, acrimonious. And then that point... Uh, and. You know, the, the business obviously is kind of falls in the line of fire. But as you know, as we all know, when you run a family business, you don't do things in the way that a normal business would run. You mm. would do them a lot more kind of informally because it's a family. Sure. So you husband and wife and their children, for example, running the business. So there's not the same kind of level of reporting and account and accounting and the bookkeeping because we're a family and we're living off of that well until you and I now have a dispute and you we're divorcing and all these kind of lax practices now start backfiring because you, you as the, let's say, divorcing husband, you want to take advantage or you want to assert leverage over your, your spouse. So this is, this is another example and a very painful example that we see all too often. Final general thoughts, Ludmilla. Disputes often escalate. Uh, and they escalate quickly because parties don't get advice early on about legal rights. They don't understand the best options and or, I guess, strategies to follow. Company memorandums and articles, memes and ours, tend to be pretty complex sets of documentation. 
often hard to understand the reality of having to deal with that. You know where I'm going with this. With shareholder disputes in mind, the things that you've seen, the things that you've had to deal with, just your final thoughts and advice. Well, number one is just choose your partner carefully. Mm. Uh, number two, just manage your expectations and know the law. And as and obviously for a lawyer, it's easy to say that, but truly lo- know the law and know the practice. Because as I mentioned earlier, you can have these, the governing documents may have a very clear mechanism for us to separate, but in practice, that mechanism does not work. You should know that. So going into a partnership, you should know that. Uh, so just basically do your due diligence uh, and in not in just um, the, the legalities, but also in, more importantly in your partner. But it's, it's obviously when you have husband and wife, you've already chosen your partner. You think that's a perfect match. Uh, so, and then seek, uh, seek legal assistance and, and, and professional assistance early on before things escalate too much. Uh, so that's very important because often these disputes um, escalate and, and become very acrimonious because parties go to or seek assistance just too late and they've done things already um, that have just been so damaging uh, that at this point, it's, it's you know, most of the time things are no longer salvageable. So to summarize, uh, choose your partner carefully, do your due diligence, legal due diligence or practical due diligence, um, and seek advice, professional advice uh, early on and and throughout. And make it perhaps my, one other one, as I'm saying this also as the business owner, is just to have professional and competent uh, advisors and staff throughout your business, even if it's your family uh, if business. Just have a professional accountant, have a professional financial advisor, for example, have a professional lawyer because throughout, because they will help you at least make sure that you have uh, some basic tools and mechanisms in place of running a business uh, that will not only help you when there is a dispute, but also will help you in making sure that your business continues to, to grow in the right directions. Ludmilla Yamalova is the managing partner at the legal firm Yamalova and Pleska here in Dubai. As ever, great to talk to you. Great talking to you too, Tim. Thank you. That's another edition of Logical. Each week we cover legal issues, legal news and much more, either in a logical, light, bite-sized podcast or in our slightly more detailed, full-length, logical podcast just like this one. If you have a legal question you need answered in a future episode, if you'd like a consultation with a qualified UAE-experienced legal professional, you can click the contact button at lylawyers.com. Find us on social media and you can WhatsApp us as well, 009 Seven one five two five two five one six one one.